0: back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And I'm joined by my terrific co-host,
1: Ben Wilson. I troubleshoot integration test failures at Databricks. And today
0: we have an episode that I'm very, very excited about, uh, let me explain why. So today we have Anand Das, and he entered the workforce sort of as a software engineer focusing on high performance compute. Um, but then he realized he he enjoyed being a CTO, so he did, he did some CTO positions. And the first CTO position that he took was for Pubmatic, which is a sell-side ad auction product. And for those of you that aren't aware, ad tech is sort of one of the most complex and data-intensive industries out there. Uh, I worked adjacent to it. And for context, Pubmatic manages over 300 billion ad auctions a day that generate over 100 terabytes of data. So, I mean, that that scale is just ludicrous. Currently, he's the co-founder and CTO of Bitto, which is essentially an LLM-powered code assistant. And the tool currently has around 100,000 developers. And so, Anand, I was wondering if you could sort of explain some of the challenges that you're looking to solve with this tool.
2: So, Michael, uh you know, generally the LLMs that are available right now, they answer questions based on generic data, right? Which is, you know, okay if you're solving simple problems. And even if you're solving complex problems, it gives you generic code. Uh, But for a developer who's working within an organization or a a project which already exists, there is already existing code. So even if you get generic code, you spend, you know, more than 50% of the time taking that code and fitting it into the, Project that you've built, right? In the fashion modularization that you need, Uh, so that basically sucks. You know, some people actually start using it, and then over a period of time, they reduce their usage of AI. So what we want to do is utilize the context of the code that you already have, so that you know using the you know LLMs which are already available, provide them the context of the code that you already have and then generate code so that you know rather than spending 50% or more, you're spending five to ten percent to get this code up and running within your project. Because then it will be really useful. The other thing that we're trying to do is, you know, there are simple things that people don't have time to do, right? Like we all talk about unit test cases, we all talk about, you know, having pipelines which actually look at, you know, is the code optimal or not, like code reviews, right? Uh, most of the times, code reviews are pending because people don't have time, and then you get "looks good to me" kind of comments, right? And then you get bugs in the production, right? And you know nobody to blame, but you know people just don't have time. So we can utilize LLMs out there uh, with some training to actually do, you know, automated reviews, so that at least people will get like quick feedback, and it also removes the human bias, right? You'll see that. Some guy made a mistake once, and then one senior developer is like, this guy's in my crosshair, right? Anything he does, like no, I'm gonna scrutinize it. But when you have like LLMs, they are looking at code, they're not looking at people, right? So they are giving review comments on, on the code. And you know, you can actually automate a bunch of things, like gender test cases, right, for code. But when you give existing code, you basically give some context and then you say, This is what I want to try to do get me the test cases, and then based on the test cases, you can generate unit test cases. Uh, Obviously, doing all of this, you know, at a high level seems easy. LLMs are not that easy to integrate. So building tools, which actually do that so that people can take their ideas and automate stuff that they don't want to do usually. uh, And automation takes care of it rather than humans. So that's where we are going.
0: Nice. So this is sort of a very interesting time for LLMs, as we've discussed a few times on this on this show. Uh, basically, LLMs can do a lot of simple tasks really well, but they struggle to handle complexity. And and before we started recording, we were actually talking about an issue that you're, you're currently facing that's perfectly solved right now. Um, and that is sort of managing context. length. Hmm. So can you explain how that can be a challenge with LLMs and how you guys are approaching solving that?
2: yeah i wouldn't say that we have solved it completely to be very frank right because uh, there is always a limit on the number of tokens per request that you make to an llm right and depending upon the llms that you are using like if you use openai the max can go to 32 uh, k tokens and you know if you basically say three characters per token which is you know off the mark because you know sometimes two characters also makes a token you know you don't you don't have a large set of code that you can provide right and, um you know although we say like you know all the code that is written right now or like you know in the last two to three years is very modular, but there is a lot amount of code that people are still working with, which is monolith right So a single file will not fit into your request right So out there the challenge uh, you know for coding right not for English text, English text is different right you can summarize and then give context but for code, you cannot basically just chunk it, by saying I'll chunk like four lines, five lines, and then you know, get embedding, and then you know, get the query, and then figure out the nearest neighborhood or cosine similarity and get the chunks, and then just give those chunks and then ask the question. The reason for that being is you might just get like four lines of the function because that is what matches, right? And then you leave the portion in between and you might get ending of the function because you know that is what matches in the index uh, that you create using embedding. So you know context management is a bigger problem so what you need to basically figure uh, like you know need to do is figure out you know needles in the hashtag and then figure out based on that needle the surface area around it which you should pass as the context so if you get a function ideally you know if you are within a function this function might be useful okay now because this function is here somebody is calling this function and this function is calling something else right Getting that piece of information, if you're modifying that particular function, will actually help not only in giving you the answer for modification, but then telling you that this modification might break these things, or you might have to go and modify these things. Otherwise, you get the answer that okay, modify this function. But then you modify and start testing, it's not gonna work properly. And right. this is severely limited by the context because you know if the code is huge. Even if you get the context right, the whole context may not fit in, into the token limit that the AI takes. So then what you need to do is, you need to actually get portion of the answer. Take that whole thing and summarize that context. When you're summarizing, make sure that the relevant portions of the code, which need to be complete are not summarized. They're given as is. And then continue the output. That looks (laughs) very easy at the high level. But when you actually run it in production, you know, you kind of see issues and then you have to kind of, you know, tune uh, things around. And then you have to go language specific also, because in JavaScript, you can have anonymous functions, right? And you can write rest APIs uh, in C and, you know, C++, you know, which is very structured, makes it easier. So you need to basically figure out, like, you know, you need to understand the language grammar so that you can generate context, which is more effective. Uh, you can start with brute force which is like similar to treating a code file as a text file and then chunking it based on characters that will get you you know decent results not like way off but at the same point in time it's not going to be highly accurate and complete over a period of time so those are certain things that we are kind of doing internally and i wouldn't say that you know we haven't like you know we are i'd say getting good results but you know we're 20% there there's like you know, 80% of work still remaining to get it to the right.
0: Yeah, and, and for those of you who are not super familiar with this problem or even the LLM space, context length refers to basically if you have an active session, how much information can you feed into a single prompt? And obviously you can't feed everything. That's what the training is for. And so managing the size of that, especially for instance in chats, as context length grows over time, That's a real challenge. And I've run into that a couple of times, actually, with with projects at work. And uh, I think your solution is fascinating, sort of starting with a local area and then searching around in that file and returning what you think will be relevant results. How do you determine what additional text is relevant versus not?
2: So, you know, if you're within a particular function or module, then you try to basically see how much of that module you should give. If the if already the context generated is huge then you basically limit yourself to the function itself right or that particular module maybe a class maybe a, an interface maybe a module then if there is space remaining you kind of look at who's calling it where it is instantiated and then give you know those code blocks so you go from center and then you know kind of spread out uh, and you spread out till the amount of context is there right and the input actually has the question and the context that you're giving. So if the question is large, your context reduces. So then uh, if you want to actually answer that question properly, you might have to break down the question into multiple parts and then actually give context and the part of the question get the answer, uh, like divide and conquer, right? Get multiple answers and then combine them together uh, to try to get the relevant results. Again, not all the time LLM will give you the right results. So you have to then tune the Hallucination and the other parameters uh, out there. Uh, so yeah, lot of lot of things uh, that go on. And as I said, language specific thing is also required because uh, you know you can do brute force with this, right? Before going to language or anything, you s- just say that if I get a hit somewhere, let me actually get you know four or five chunks around it, right? Two above, two below, right? In the sequence. And if you see Llama Index and the other guys, they have like chunk overlap. Right. So, so that, you know, there's some continuation and, you know, if you hit one area, you have something surrounding it, but if the surrounding thing is not complete, you get funny results, right? Uh, like you might get like a function which does something and then you're like, it shouldn't do this because, you know, this is what I do out here. Yeah. But, you know, it gave you that answer because it only had a portion of the function, not the complete function. So it just, you know, hallucinated about what the remaining part was. Uh, so, that is, that is what you are trying to kind of avoid. Uh, give a complete block which is uh, relevant uh, out there. And out there, uh, language specific thing helps you to actually get a language specific block which is concise and required uh, rather than a portion of it. Yeah.
0: And, Ben, how have you seen other sort of companies or just engineers in general solve this context length problem?
1: Uh I don't know if anybody has a perfect solution for it right now. Um I can speak I mean, I've been while you've been talking, I've been writing down a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Uh but the the context awareness is something that like we use GPT four like a lot. Uh not like, hey, write all my code for me. Uh clearly it doesn't work. But we use it for uh, validation because we're building tools that interface with that system and some of these other providers. And we want to do, basically understand what the capabilities of these things are so that the APIs that we're building kind of do things that help to solve the problem that somebody's trying to do. Like pre-crafting a prompt for somebody for a task like, hey, I have... These two functions. Please write a unit test for me using this framework and this, you know, so prompt engineering type stuff, and then test that out and see what other results look like. And I think when you're just testing something out for the first time and playing around with it, you're going to do very simple Hello World style things. That's what a lot of people, I think, did the first few months of these things being out there. Like, oh, look, it can. Can write this test for me. It's so awesome. Yeah, but that wasn't really complex. It's not really real world. So we're doing real world stuff. We're saying, like, hey, I've got an entire module I'm going to try to paste in block by block, and I'm going to give it a very specific instruction. Like, I want you to create a new API endpoint for me based on the context that I'm giving you. And it must adhere to these, like, do these things, but also not do these other things and, you know, wait for that to generate and then say my next prompt is I would like testing to be conducted using the PyTest framework. I want unit test mock patches to be done so that I'm not calling this other thing and I need parameterization of at least 15 elements to validate that this works correctly. Provided that you craft that prompt, it it does pretty well. But one thing that we... That we've noticed is there's almost a proliferation in context of where prompt engineering, where if you're giving it context of garbage, it starts to proliferate that garbage. So like we've intentionally sent bad coding practices into it and saying, hey, I want something in this style. And it, it seems on a new clear session, it'll fix code. But the longer that the context session goes on, if you keep on giving it junk, it starts producing bad code, like unreadable nonsense, like overly complex things where it's like, yeah, the computer can understand that. But if I ask my buddy, hey, can you tell me what this code does? They're sitting there for like, you know, two or three minutes just reverse engineering it in their mind. What are your thoughts on that side effect of people becoming more dependent on LLM-based or any sort of just code gen systems where the source that you're providing, these these engines, might not be optimal?
2: Yeah. I think um, that problem is huge, right? Because we are seeing the way people are using it. And obviously, we don't track anything on our side. Uh, But, you know, sometimes when we are kind of like uh, helping users uh, when they get into situations or like, hey, this is not working, the way we see people working is they'll ask AI to generate some piece of code, right? Uh, Then they'll try it out. It doesn't work. Then they will just copy paste the stuff uh, saying that the code is there because the context is there. Then they'll say, here's the error that I got. Then the AI will suggest, okay, go and modify these things in the code. So they just keep repeating it over a period of time they're copy-pasting, they've forgotten that they're coding. They have forgotten that this is what I was trying to do, right? And they get into this scenario as like, I have to ask the question and this guy's going to answer and I'm just going to try this answer. So, you know, early on, if somebody starts using AI, they are not learning programming. They are basically, you know, going through this, I have to ask a question, and I have to verify whether the question, uh, the answer is correct. If the answer is not correct, I'll basically say that okay, this is the issue, and then get me the next answer, right? (laughs) And some people believe that that is programming, which is, which is not, right? Um, On the other side, the the problem that you mentioned, right, like garbage in, garbage out, that is like you know, like well known stuff. So if you have like bad code, uh, it will seep in. Forget about the bad code. If you basically have like Something mentioned in the prompt which is not right, that also gets carried forward uh, in, in the context because what it is doing, it is referring to what you have given before. That is its knowledge base, right? It might use something from the model that you learned, but the more focus is on what you have provided. So ideally, uh, you know what we suggest to people is before you generate test cases and stuff, or before you you know modify the code, try to run some checks on the code like is it performant, right, Uh, you know, does it have any modelization issues, right? Should we refactor it? If you can do that, then do that before you run the other stuff. Otherwise, it is going to go and provide you code in the same fashion that you have written, right? And uh, rather than saying just the same fashion, as you said, right, it percolates down, so the code will get more worse and worse, right? It is... LLMs are very good at repeating the mistakes that you have done.
1: Yes. can confirm. Yeah. So, One thing uh, that I you know,
2: humans have to take care. We haven't automated that as of yet. Because that's a that's also a philosophical uh, problem, right? Like uh the, why I say philosophical, not technical, is because you can do that, but some people don't want it. Like, don't touch my existing code, please. All right. And I want to keep it the same. For fear or like, you know lack of resources to actually manage the change. Maybe that's the case, but uh, some people are like, I don't want the existing code to change. I want everything to fit in. And there are people who are okay with ripping and replacing. Those are like fine with you know doing those things. But in practicality, I've seen that happening only for new code that is being written. For any existing code, like an organization or anybody who's basically working as a contractor, they say, I'm not going to touch existing code. I'm just going to make the new code and somehow fit it in into what was working. So yeah, that's that's the thing. Yeah, in reality.
1: Yeah, one thing that anecdotally, I noticed that is a, related to what we're we're talking about. Yeah. In some of the earlier versions of OpenAI's APIs, you could you could start prompting and generating code that it it seemed like. It was just following instructions. So one of the games I played with it was trying to get efficient, you know, comprehension of a collection and saying, hey, I have this list of the size and it has these nested components in it. And, you know, it's eventually get it to the point where it's sort of following along with what I'm explaining to it. And I'm trying to intentionally be vague at first. But the point of it was, can I get this thing to create a tail recursive loop that will crash a computer? Basically write, you know, antagonistic code that if somebody were to execute it, it's going to brick their their computer. And if you just ask for that uh, on like GPT 3.5 Turbo, it wouldn't do it. It'd say, I don't recommend doing this. I mean, you know, first generation stuff back in November last year, it would just produce... Uh, oh, you yep. want to crash a computer? Here you go. Here's the code. And now there's like, safeguards and protections against that. But 3.5 could only, I eventually got it to generate some fairly not truly malicious code, but sort of trolling code. Yeah. And to the point where I, you execute it and it gets, you know, it crashes Python mm-hmm. uh, because of recursion limits. And then other things like just filling up you know, memory allocation space and just creating so many objects that Python just dies, the kernel crashes. Whereas repeating that same exercise with GPT-4, when it got to a certain point where it kind of grokked what I was trying to get it to do, it stopped. It was like, I, I know what you're trying to do here. I don't recommend you do this and I'm not going to give you the code to do that. It's like, man, that's clever. Yeah. Great job on them for <clears throat> for getting that reference, however they had to train that, I don't know. But whatever that mixture of experts, like, I don't know if there's a, a gatekeeper expert that's in there. It's like, what is this code actually trying to do? Uh, do you see any sort of dangers out there of somebody trying to do something similar to that for sort of zero-day operations? Where, you know, it's these things are capable of, generating relatively sophisticated code. Yeah. And If you have an idea that you understand the inner workings of an operating system or a kernel to say, hey, hey, I wanted the ability to get root access here. Can this thing do it in a way that it doesn't have reference in its training data for what I'm actually trying to do?
2: I would say for, uh, you know, all these uh, models which are supported by bigger organizations like OpenAI, Anthropic, you know, Amazon, Google, they will put, uh, I'd say restriction on top of the model and also train the model not to give it. But I'm not so sure about all the open source or you know other models that are available out there because that requires a good amount of work. And as you rightly pointed out, like you know, uh previously there was a guy who was using a prompt uh, on our side, like you know, give me five ways to break the code. All right. So now break the code means Multiple things, right? From his perspective, as trying to break the code so that he can basically write test cases, right? So he's like, "Give me five ways to break the code." And the next prompt was like, "You know, generate test cases for this." Suddenly, one day, it stopped working, right? Sure. Because break the code means, you know, you might be breaking a code, right? Which is which can be a access key, right, or mm-hmm. something like that. So it just stopped. So we had to change the question. <laughs> <to> say, <laughs> Give me five ways to, you know. Test this code, but you know what I'm looking for is negative test cases, right? Yes. Uh, but you know the fun part was uh, it was working sometimes five ways to break the code, and sometimes it was not working, which also meant that you know they were recently updating the model at that point in time and see mm-hmm. it through, right? And it also depended upon the depended upon the context because they try to identify what you mean by this request, right? Uh, So they were, they started doing that first. And then the other thing is you can change the question. Right. So if you're just looking at the question or what the request is, you can prevent that request from happening. But I can change the request wherein I don't let out the intent, but I'm saying try, like, you know, do give instructions, do this, 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 and this, whose output might lead to something which is wrong. And now some of the algorithms have started putting the restriction. On the output that is generated. So they verify the output. But again, like you know, these these guys are kind of uh like open or any massively used models, they have to do that because the risk is higher of them allowing somebody to break something. But in open source, yeah, not, like you know, it's not like open source models are bad as something, like that. but in open source model, people will have to take extra effort, like whoever is maintaining it, to add that layer in. So there will be like, you know, even today, I think on, on some website or something, somebody had mentioned that, you know, hey, there is this model, there are no restrictions, there's no check, you can actually, you know, give it questions and it generates code, right? Like, like the dark side, uh, or the dark web, as I call it, like, you know, there are some models still there, uh, you know, which basically have no restrictions, and you ask them anything and they're going to answer. But. We need to, like, as an industry, I would say that we need to basically work towards making sure that that doesn't happen because it's going to kill us at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you get, I mean, imagine what it's going to look like three, four years from now, where, assuming we're still on transformers architecture, which we yeah. probably won't be, uh, with how many how many great minds are working in this field now, but what happens when we have you know, a ten trillion parameter model, and it's been trained on so much code that nobody's really capable of doing QA on on the input training data. And something like that is just provided for for anybody to use. It's Like, hey, so long as you have this, you know, whatever it might be, eight hundred gigabyte you know, GPU instance that you can load this model onto uh, four years from now. Provided you can, you can start it up and run inference against it. It can do stuff like, you know, you ask it, hey, how do I, you know, I have this particular, you know, control software. You don't tell it where, where it's installed. You just say, hey, it, you know, this esoteric programming language that's used, for controlling devices, and I, I need an instruction set to troubleshoot and interface with this system. And it's like, oh, I, well, I do have reference to that language, and it's, you know, it, it utilizes Profibus connections. And here's the instruction set to gain access to it, and then here's some code to run this diagnostic that you want. And nobody realizes that this person has jumped over a fence or cut through a chain link fence uh, at an electrical power substation and they plug in their connection cable and are sending instruction code to this thing that then takes out a large part of the power grid in a, company, in a country. Uh, to, to get that knowledge prior to one of these tools, you would need a decade of experience of yeah. working with that type of stuff. And during that, you acquiring that decade of experience, there's probably government security that's involved in making sure that you're not a terrible human being yeah. uh, in order to, to be able to be exposed to that. So, from my perspective, stuff like that is kind of scary with yeah. with some of this stuff. Uh, if there isn't security controls built into the model architecture itself and
0: yeah.
1: that being a standard, I think we're going to see stuff like that. In the yes, absolutely. Day.
2: Totally agree. And right now, I think, you know, these guys, like, you know, I'm not, like, you know, all the big guys, they have a reputation as well as security to maintain. So, you know, it's like they have to do it. But those who don't have to do it and like, you know, and they're not wrong either, right? Researchers are basically publishing things for the good, right? They don't have a huge amount of time to actually put these restrictions in place. But, you know, there is a framework on top of which they build, which actually gives this Restrictions, then it makes it easy. But again, you know, as a programmer, what I think is like today we have hackers, right? Both white hat and dark hat. Right. Uh, if you have something which is open source, and if there is a module which is basically adding these restrictions, somebody uh like who has a bad mind can actually take that code, modify it, and still try to do what it is not supposed to do. Uh so you know like you know there are two two thought pools right like should you have it as open source or what part of it should be open source and what part of it should not be but at the same point in time it's code so somebody can actually you know if they want to at some point in time can take over take away the security aspect of it um, you know and that is scary that is that is scary <laughs> to be very right so uh, we need to have more good human beings and we need to have checks i would say because anything in code can be changed by somebody who knows how to code and that's the issue out
0: here if if we have like some bad guy who has a bad mind like <laughs> yeah oh yeah. yeah so i i have a question yeah uh, ben and i were chatting about this yesterday and i would love love your take on it one of the things that frequently we run into with LLMs is keeping the models up to date. And they're incredibly expensive to train. But having really recent information, especially when you're working on sort of cutting edge tools or techniques, it's really valuable. And I found that for instance, I am building a new Databricks tool and there's open source documentation, but maybe the documentation isn't great. So I'm sort of scratching my head, how can I actually build this thing? I go to ChatGPT and say, hey, you even know what this is and it just spits out nonsense because it was trained in 2021. Hmm. So how do you think about keeping these models up to date and specifically how do you think about cleaning data and bringing that in but also how can you re-train in a cheap manner uh sort of at at recent intervals. Hmm. So You
2: know, the thing is, uh, we're using, I'd say, uh, commodity models, right? Open AI and stuff like that. The moment you train, your cost goes up, right? And we are cheap guys, right? I don't want the cost to go up. So we use a different mechanic. So, you know, we believe that, you know, you would want to train the model. uh, Like, you know, when you say training, right, from our perspective, it's like to change the behavior of the model of how it is answering questions or, you know, like if you write code in a certain way, uh, after like, you know, your uh, you know you put up space before curly braces whenever you open, you know, those kind of things, you know. So I'll train the model a lot. But if I want it to use more recent information, then, you know, what we tend to do is, rather than depending upon the model, which is basically going to update its data, which is used cost anyway for OpenAI and the other guys, right? And they do it like, you know, maybe quarterly, half yearly or yearly. What we try to do is depending upon the things that you're planning to do, like for example, you're using Angular right now, right? So if I have Angular documentation, which is basically properly indexed, right, using embedding, then provide that context when you're writing the Angular code for things that have modified, have been modified from the version that the model is on, right? That's a quicker way but you have to also you know modify the prompts to make sure that you know the hallucination is not there and it knows where to use what so for example if a particular thing is deprecated and new thing has come up then you have to mention that this was deprecated instead of that you can use these things right uh, otherwise uh, the answers are bad uh, but you know if you want to train like you know if you're training specific like you know not on a generic stuff but on your own code right so, it's a limited data set. Then, uh, you know, it's an easier task, but at the same point in time, the, you know, if you want the training to be fast, you need to actually come up with the right question and answer set that you provide as the input, right? And, you know, that's a learning in itself, right? Uh, when we first started training a particular model, everybody said 1500 inputs is good we did 1500 inputs it basically we we figured out that a model basically didn't do anything different from you know with the training that we had given I had to give like more than 100k inputs for it to start showing me results of training right then to it was not correct and then you know I had to give huge amount of questions right then we kind of figured out and this is different for different models but some models are very good if you give them more negative examples and some models are good if you give them more positive uh like you know a mix of positive and and negative examples to kind of train faster so in some cases you say do not do this and in some cases you say this is okay
1: this is bad
2: uh but it you know it differs from model to model right although you know you are using the transform model and stuff like that uh and this you basically figure out after doing it for like you know a couple of times that okay this is what works here this is what works there and ideally you know we'd like to automate that to be very clear. like portions of it are automated but we don't have something which is like okay this is the model like let's try to train it and see you know which mechanics works um, and you know these are the things that we have learned the hard way like you know doing and then figuring out it doesn't work and then you know figuring out what works but there are other models out there that we haven't tested so the mechanics might be different and obviously the 1500 market like you know 1500 inputs is good enough to train kind of marketing input yeah that's fine you and Not then enough. generating these questions the other thing is uh, you de- do need human inputs you can generate the uh, question and answer using ai itself but that is like like you know feed, like you know, as Ben pointed out you can feed wrong things also Right. So in training, you know, although you might use AI to generate question and answers, you need to go through a human review and put some checks and balances in place before those question and answers are used. If you're doing like demo wear, right, smaller things, then yeah, go ahead with it. But if you're doing an enterprise thing, you'll have to put these things in place. Otherwise, you know, yeah it will work good in demo but when you are using it in practice you know there are things that will kind of like break or you know it's not basically giving you the type of answers that it should yeah so
0: it's, it's a really interesting concept that sort of relates to drift detection where if you're constantly retraining how do you monitor whether the model will start hallucinating more or whether quality will change um, yeah. and so obviously you need good training data each each rerun but um, You can also just monitor that over time. So yeah. It's it's a really cool like concept of applying drift detection to to elements as well.
2: And and that has to be put in place. If you're doing it without it, then you know, suddenly not now, but you know, like six months down the line, you start seeing things which you are like, this shouldn't happen this way. Right? Uh, as it's it's like you know, asking a kid, like, you know, just learn on yourself, right? So (laughs) you need some guidelines so that. Uh, he doesn't go in the wrong on the wrong track, right? Uh, so that is where you need to basically put, uh, you know, I'd say human review or some other mechanics. Uh, in some cases, you can automate it. In some cases, you need uh, human inputs, right? So
1: yeah, that's the really interesting thing that I've seen, uh, you know, as some of the listeners who have been like into the show for a long time no i used to be a data scientist and build models and solutions and stuff in companies um and when we were talking about nlp a decade ago and we're using the old school techniques uh it's like hey i need all this training data to go into this model that can find you know uh you know word groupings and and try to do auto completion with like finding probability of next word it was really slow but you could get it to do certain things that were pretty clever and you'd see like hey if I just look at these n-grams and then check out like what is a potential probability for the next word um, it could do stuff like clean up messy text you know somebody we want to standardize a big corpus of data and and people you know there's grammatical errors in it but there's a million entries. I don't want to sit there and rewrite these by hand. Perfect application for that. But when we were training stuff back then and and even the precursor to Transformers talking about like LSTMs, you build something and so much time and effort went into the training data where you have to go in and manually clean a bunch of stuff and write a bunch of algorithms to figure out where there's problems in the data and cull certain things and identify it for usually the data scientists to go in and fix all this stuff and then you have the sacrosanct data set that you then train on but what i'm hearing more from companies that never did that before because they're just now coming to the party like hey these things are easy um i can just give it you know I can use GPT-4 to generate my training data and for fine-tuning. It's like, yeah, you really don't want to do that. Um, or they say, well, we can't scale, you know, creating a training data set. And the question that hits my mind is like, what do you mean you can't scale? Is it time? And they're like, well, we don't have the people or the time to, to do that. Like We didn't 10 years ago either, but that's why it took a year to get the model out because it, and 20 people working on it this is this is not like a new problem this is yeah. machine learning 101 this is how you get good things so you put a lot of effort in do you see or do you hear people talking about that specifically about what your company is working to address where people are saying why well, I, I have this esoteric programming language that you know the tool on its own it doesn't really do well with like oh i need i need an llm for Haskell. But like okay Uh, we don't have a ton of training data on that. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But uh, do people want to see a a quick result from something like that? Do you you get that feel from from customers?
2: I think, uh, yeah, from customers. Some of the customers are kind of new and uh, haven't basically dirtied their hands by actually trying it out. They think that training should be like two days worth of work, right? I'll give you all the data and somehow you fit it in. And people who know about it, they will talk, like, they they know, they, you know, they'll talk and saying that, how are you going to actually use this much amount of data? How many questions will you generate? You know, if I update my code and you want to kind of train it, what is the lag time? It's going to be a week or two weeks or a month, right? Like, uh, so people who know, uh, and, you know, the people who know are also people who have solved these problems before, <laughs> right? Like. Uh, most of the people who are kind of like, okay, this is new tech and, you know, I basically asked it a question to kind of generate some, you know, test data based on the code that I've given and it gave me like 50 records, great, like, you know, it can generate any question and answer, right? Like, you ask 10 questions and then, you know, you're yeah, cool. Like, that should be easy, right? Like, you know, you just run it in a loop. Like uh, Like, the answers that are coming... Do you know that, you know, it can hallucinate? And like, what if the temperature value is seven versus two, right? You know, you don't want the same question and answer repeating multiple times. Have you seen the output if I run it like a thousand times? And look at what kind of questions and answers you're getting. And then you actually sometimes you have to, like, you know, people are, so much into it and they believe so much into all the Twitter stuff. You know, somebody is saying that, you know, I did this, and they're like, it's so easy. You know, this guy wrote an open source piece of code and it does this, right? You know, now you have auto, auto GPT. Uh, you know, and I can give it a question and it solves it. Then you ask them, like, you know, how much how many hours does it take to solve this complex problem? Right? Like because it's doing trial and error. Uh, then you give them an example, like okay, let me run it, this question and answers, and you see the question and answers. And now that you look at it do you think that it is as easy as just generating question and answers and feeding the data we can do that but it's not the right thing to do but sometimes you have to show and tell people um, and then they understand because you know people are all in like you know this is going to change the world and you know like we just need to use it somehow uh, but people who are kind of real and have dealt with these these problems before they are like we understand okay training is there Training is costly. You have to give a huge amount of data. How are you going to generate the data? How are you going to have like negative and positive? Like, you know, what do you think will work? And, you know, will this change if I'm using a different model? Because enterprises are different, right? They don't want like a model from OpenAI or this thing because they're, they're still thinking that, you know, it's not secure. And obviously, you know, if they're using the APIs which are out there by default, you know, data is used for training. So they want to take an open source model, train it run it in-house and when you do that like it also depends upon the model that you're using uh you know how much amount of data it already has the kind of training input it can take like the token limits and so on because you have to make sure that the question and answers that you give fit into that right they are more complete than you know you're spreading it across because then you know training is more effective and you have to also figure out like one is like doing the initial training then you have to figure out anytime things modify uh, or are modified? What is the differential learning that you give on a periodic basis, right? Uh, and how much time it is going to take? So there is going to be a cold start problem, and there is going to be a, re- a repetitive, uh, you know, training that is kind of going in. You know, say that it, enterprise buys a company which has a set of APIs, and suddenly everybody has to use it internally, right? Uh, like, say for authentication, now, you know, anytime you type code, like, you know, you're not basically using some open source stuff. You know, this is this authentication function that the company has bought, right, that you have to use. That is what shows up in your algorithm. That is, uh, you know, something that will require a good amount of work. It's not as easy as that. But you have to show and tell some people who are, like, you know, who are blind. Blind or you know, I'd say believers because, you know, it, it holds promise but, you know, like, there's a lot of of marketing and fluff uh, from the reality uh, and those people who have done it before they are like no it's not that easy they they clearly know it's not that easy yeah so we see both
1: <laughs> yeah can confirm you know talk to a number of of uh, of our customers who are trying to get into it and i can tell within 30 seconds of jumping onto a meeting whether people have built stuff at scale with sufficient complexity in the ML space. I'm like, yep, these people know what they're talking about. Because yeah. it's sort of the questions that they're asking and the yeah. comments they're making. They're like, yeah, chat GPT-4 is cool. Uh, we ran that through some paces to do this sort of problem. Like, Okay, I'm talking to a team yeah. of actual data scientists and ML engineers and software engineers who know in order to get the vision that the business wants, this is a two-year project to use this this massive open source model and they understand what's what's involved and there's other people that are they're just like yeah this thing's great and it can do no wrong like i asked it this one question it didn't have context and yeah i I usually give them a a little bit of homework and say Mm -hmm. test it out for what you think it's going to do but start asking it questions in ways that are not generic but are specific to your business and see how well it does. And then they they're like, "Oh, yeah, it has no context. It doesn't understand what any of this stuff is." Yeah. Cuz nobody outside of your company understands what this is. That acronym that you use, hopefully it's unique and it can just say, "I don't know what this is." But if that if that is some cool little marketing term that you 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 took from English vernacular, and it means something completely different. Check to see how it responds to that. Uh, it'll think that you're you just had a typo, uh, or you accidentally put the caps lock down while typing this in, yeah. and it will go absolutely insane. with This response.
2: Absolutely, you know the fun part is, uh, you know, when people say, you know, hey, training is easy and stuff. You know, one one fun thing that I ask them to do is take a piece of code and ask OpenAI to basically make it performant. Take the performance code and then again ask the same question, make it performant, and keep on going. Mm-hmm. Because it will always give you changes. Yes. And it never stops. And the fun part is, if you're not, if you're looking at it in detail, then you'll see that you know some of the code that was modified before for performance reasons, it has like remodified, and then it'll go back to some things that it has told you before in the next one, and it just keeps on going in an infinite loop. The reason for that being is it thinks that it needs to answer. So if you don't train it properly, it's never gonna stop. Um, and then once they go through it, then they're like, oh, okay, because you know, you, you don't stop in one place, right? And even if you regenerate, it is gonna regenerate different answers. Right? Mm-hmm. Then then you ask them, like, what do you expect it to do? Give you something which you know can stick around. Or sometimes you're writing a new piece of code. So you want to kind of look at, you know, what are the different ways into you know in which you can do this same stuff. But then Hallucination can creep in. There is no solution for it right now. Once in a while, it will creep in. Right, whatever prompt you give, when you say don't use this, use this only, it's gonna creep in. That we have seen. So there are a lot of like challenges, as you said. Um, you know, it's 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 not easy. Uh, but you know, when people see like you know, I gave a question. You know, when when their whole premise is based on two three usages that they have done manually. Yeah.
1: It's the same thing yeah. that I've found. In fact, just yesterday uh, evening, I was playing around with chat GPT-4. Uh, I had just finished doing a, a unit test implementation for something that's pretty low-level and complex in Python, believe it or not. Um, but it required interfacing with uh, memory state of the actual hash tables. And being able to test around mocking some responses that it would have for object references which is something that you don't typically do because uh, it, it requires using sort of dev APIs in Python that change with every Python release so good luck you know keeping that compatible but because I was trying to di- like diagnose something I was going down to that level and saying like, what is going on here like why do I have this extra reference here so I, I was like I figured it out, got the, the result, and then I wanted to see how GPT-4 would do with that. It's like, hey, I need to do this thing where I'm I'm overriding this state and it, it's something that's going to be influencing how the global interlock works and I need to get this memory address. And it gives me something that's basically read out of the official Python docs about how you would access this. And then I said, well, how would I, override this and it it did not hesitate it started producing you know unit test mock things for patching and i was like all right i'll humor it i'll run it and, and see what happens and of course not it it's completely wrong so i took the response and i explained to gpt4 hey this what you're doing is referring to this actual processes reference to itself so i you can't actually do that. It's self-referential. I need something that's not in the this process thread that's in another instance of Python running in order to get this access. And and eventually, you know, the answer is you can't use Python for this. I need to use a Unix command to inspect this. And uh, it was just crazy how how insane it became with just doubling down on more and more complex more and more broken things yeah and it it brought me back to the other thing that i did this week which i think these systems are absolutely amazing at which is learning something for the first time and i'm blown away by how great these things are as teachers provided that you tell it like i know these languages I have no concept of how to do this, you know, X language proficiently. Please teach me the fundamentals and provide me examples of how I can do these tasks in this language. Because uh, I'm trying to learn React right now. Uh, I'm not a front end guy, oh, but I, I need to learn it to do a, a big project. So I'm using it to say, "Show me a good way to do this with this, you know, front end stack," and it, it's guiding me through and I'm learning way faster through examples than I would trying to read through a book and, you know, know, use the getting started guide. But once you hit this, there's like this threshold that you hit when you know enough about that languages, you know, behavior where you can instantly spot where the response is total garbage. But it's kind of scary when you think about if somebody were to ask me, hey Ben, I need this this credit card payment you know, app to be written in React and you got a month to do it. And I'd be like, I have no idea how to do that. I've never done that before. I don't even know React well enough or JavaScript well enough to do something like that. And if I go over to, to GPT-4 and start asking it, to like, hey, can you generate all this stuff for me? I needed to do this, and I needed to process this credit card number properly, and and make this call out to Stripe properly, and and then you know safely secure this. It could be creating something that's going to you know basically build a lawsuit for your company. Yeah, that's what's kind of scary.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like you know, for learning, I'd say you know, like it's like uh, it, it gets you to an escape velocity as, I, as yeah. I think about it, right? Like, you you know, if you want to, like, you know, uh, I was learning Angular, you guys <laughs> use Angular. I'm a complete backend guy, but, you know, sometimes when you have to fix things, yes. you don't know, then, you know, uh, what I've seen is, like, you know, when you have specific questions, or, you know, people like us, when we learn, or even kids, I'd say, who are learning programming languages, for them, reaching to an escape velocity or, like, the base model level is good. But if you want to do some, like, things, Uh, which we want to do, right, in our brains, but, you know, the documentation doesn't support it and there's no knowledge about it, right, like the hacker's mentality, if I may say so, then, you know, these guys fail because nobody has done it. Or, like, you know, they'll basically paste you documentation. They'll tell you, you know, based on whatever they know, they'll generate something which may not work, right? Because uh, sometimes they think that they learn a lot but at the same point in time sometimes i think that you know the the conceptual part is not there right <laughs> you know what i mean it's like yeah you memorized a lot of amount of things and you figured out the sequences in which or order in which you know these kind of like correlate with each other right sequence and series like you know like these memory maps but you know this is the concept dude and then you know based on this you can only do this you shouldn't do this or you know things like that that it kind of misses out so initial start is pretty fast and you know solving a problem when you can describe what the problem is and in your mind you have a solution this is how I want it to be then it makes it easier but if somebody is basically saying that you know I just go to it it's my like my uh, you know hidden programmer (laughs) right like you know uh, then, then it's not good because like you don't know what to do you're expecting this guy to figure out what to do. GPT-4 to some level, you know, you can give specifications and it will kind of understand, uh, but not like you know, if you're writing complex piece of code, then not so good. And again, we talk about prompt engineering, but you know, frankly speaking, I think people who have built a schema in their mind or, you know, I'd say a logic of how to solve the problem, they can provide the prompt properly, whereas people. Who are like, I want to solve this problem, but haven't basically figured out in their mind the logical order of or sequence of how the thing should work. Their answers will never be right. But people who have that sequence correct, right? Their prompt will actually yield more better results. Uh, you know, and that's, that's you know, practical stuff. Uh, you know, like prompt engineering is like, okay, if your logical thought process is good, you'll get it. If your logical thought process is not good, then yeah. You know, sometimes it's like writing pseudocode, right? And asking you to generate code in a way, right?
1: At a high level. Yeah, the the best unit tests that I've had it write for me are the ones where I'm writing more English in bullet point instructions than yes. it would have taken me to actually write the test. And I'll only do it if if I'm like, all right, I'm doing something that is I don't need to have interfaces with other parts of my code. I have this. You know, sort of pure function that's just doing this one thing and it's calling maybe one other function and that's it. So I'll paste both those functions saying this is the intended performance of this, this code. Here are the data structures that I'm expecting to have come in. I want you to write positive validation for these eight data structures. I want negative validation for 12 others. And I want to make sure that all of my exceptions that I'm raising within these functions will be triggered with what i'm expecting as invalid results and then here's how i want you to write these tests how many of them i want you to write the structure like which which yeah. test framework to use and i write that all out and like i just wrote like three paragraphs of text geez but if i say generate you know 20 tests for me and it'll sit there and iterate and write that and i look at the result and like all right that saved me from writing 900 lines of uh, basically You know, script, uh, I see that as a win. But when I have to manipulate it to get an, like, because I'm just doing this for testing, like, hey, I need this thing to do X, Y, and Z. And I want it to, you know, use these input types. And I don't give it a lot of context. You generate it, like, you just happen to correct it constantly. And what's really funny to me is when, I'm in a prompt session, and I'm going through and asking a series of questions that are using parts of a language that aren't frequently used or I don't think are frequently asked about because I don't think a lot of the training data is on framework code. I think it's more on like the applied side It's what because that's what most users are gonna be asking. But if you're talking about interfaces to like the operating system and system, you know, related things and stuff with subprocesses and threading. And you start getting down this hole of hey I need to access this low level component and use it in some way. When you start asking things and asking for examples to be generated to solve a problem it starts writing its own framework code which I, it yeah. always just blows my mind when it hallucinates in that way. It creates its own API that doesn't exist in the language. But then you look at it, you're like, that should exist in the language. This is so useful. And it's like and you start thinking, like, how did it come to this this, you know, how did it come to generate this answer? You realize, oh, that exists in in C and it exists in Java, but it doesn't exist in Python, you know, or vice versa. It's like that's why it thought that this was a thing because of all of this other context yeah. that it had.
2: Yeah, it's fun because you know sometimes you kind of ask it to write, say, a Node.js or Python thing, right? Like, you know, the the uh, the the cool example is like, I want to use TikTok in like uh, Node.js, right? <laughs> like, so then it will basically give you something like, this doesn't exist. Then you are like, okay, let me write a Python code. <laughs> right? That will work. And then, then try to use that as a module, like you know, by making some extra calls in Node.js. Okay, fine, dude. But you know, over a period of time, it started giving that as a result. I'm like, okay, fine. But you know, you can use something else other than this. You know, you can look at the libraries which are there that you know you can readily use in um, Node.js, like you know, use GPT-3 tokenizer or like you uh, know, stuff like that. But it's it's kind of funny when it uh, hallucinates at that level. Right, if you ask it to, you know, use a particular like, you know, it doesn't know about a CLI or it doesn't know about an API. Which is broken, and you say, okay, using this API, you know, do this. It'll actually make API calls. It will make REST calls, and it looks all proper. Then you start using it. Then you are like, this doesn't work. I am like, yes, because it doesn't know about this. You said that there exists an API, so it just crafted its own and gave you a piece of code. Right now, you have to go and figure out which of the APIs actually does what it was. Like what this code generated, right? Like it said, okay, add an element. But does it have add an element or add a list? Then you have to go and modify the code, which is which is uh, which is funny because people go into that like in as I said black hole. They'll spend like hours. Some people will say, okay, I give up and I'll write the code on my own. And some people will like in some people who then learn would actually say, hey, by the way, this is how the API is. Right? These are the APIs available. Can you modify the code to use this API? Mm -hmm. Right, so it's 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 pretty interesting, yeah. A lot of like hard lessons I would call, uh, which are funny also.
0: (laughs) I've
1: actually learned to use some of that hallucinating output in that exact way when designing an API. Yeah, so I'll ask it to like, "Hey, are you familiar with this framework?" And it's like, "Yes," Or, or it will say, "No, I don't know," and I'll I'll take like, "Hey, here's the the main client." API for this, and here's the methods that are available, and I, I need to add in something that does X. Uh, can you write, you know, the the applied usage of this new API? And it's interesting to see, or I'll say, hey, give me three examples of how to use this. And you, you start to get it generated. I know I'm on the right track with my own design when largely agrees with most of the the things that are generated because it's, mm-hmm. it's almost intuitive. It's like, okay, Absolutely. this is learning how other things are built. And if I yeah. deviate away from that too much, there's no context for a human user to intuitively understand how this is going to work. Yeah.
0: And it I'm waiting for somebody
1: needed. to build a, a tool that does that. Like, hey, use an LLM to basically generate proper API designs.
2: And the fun part is, you know, it will also do versioning and uh, backward and forward compatibility. You know, it's like, uh, because, you know, we were trying to build a API layer and, you know, we had like, you know, you start with like a prototype API and then everybody's like happy that it's up and working. And then, you know, we did the same thing. We asked like, both uh, OpenAI and Anthropic, right? Like, hey, generate an API to do blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, you know, one guy's like, shit, we didn't add versioning. <laughs> like, this this guy is, like, putting in this stuff. I'm like, good. Like, you learned something. Let's let's go and add it in. Yes. So, you know.
1: Put <laughs> that V1 in did. there.
2: Yeah. So, um, and, you know, like, like, you know, there are these simple things which, you know, even, like, you know, programmers who have been there, because, you know, they're focused on, like, you know, getting this solution out. So when, you know, they see these kind of things, they are, like, you know, suddenly it's, like, Oh man, like you know, let's put this in. But if you do it on day one, it's great, right? You don't have to kind of modify or change the uh, mechanics later on. But these simple things like code smells will go away when you utilize it in the right fashion.
1: Like yeah. Yeah, I had a question that I wrote down in the first three minutes of our chat that relates to this, and mm-hmm. something that one of the members on the on the team that I'm on uh, implemented for our GitHub repo is an integration that says hey i can tag the code block in a github pr and it'll send it off along with context around it to open ai and we can ask questions to it and say hey is this the most efficient way of doing this or could you could you rewrite this for me in a more efficient way or can you like this is too complex can you rewrite this for readability which that's the one that i love the most i, I love that prompt um I'm very much about readable code. Uh, you know, huge adherent to that. But one of the things that's really interesting is what are the challenges for your tooling and at the company that you're working at where it becomes no, not so much a technical problem, but a philosophical question or a human behavioral problem. If, if you have something like that that's running, what are the impacts to the team psychologically to having, you know, a sort of a dad in the room that's checking everything that you're doing and how do people see that or how do you feel people will see that going forward if they lose faith in that?
2: So there are a couple of things, right? Like, you know, let's assume that, you know, what whatever it is giving is like better than what is written. Right for a second, right, uh, and it works, right. And all of these, you know, are with a lot of caveats, right? Like yeah. it works is another caveat, but you know, it's it's also like you know better than what you have. But you know, you know, we get asked this question uh, when we are talking about like you know building a PR tool or something like that. People are like, can we actually, you know, is it going to run at the user level or is it gonna basically run as a Git hook? But it's gonna post comments publicly. Right? The, you know, and I'd say, you know, there's this difference also. Junior guys don't care, they're learning. Senior guys who've been there for a long time, they, you know, I would say are a bit afraid, but they're kind of apprehensive about like what it is going to put in. There are two, two schools of thought. Somebody's like, okay, I'll learn more. And some people are like, you know, we did this for a particular reason this way. May not be performant, but you know this. This is this is the context of why we have done it. We know that it's not performant. So if you're basically you know changing the code for performance, then you know, it's it's a, a wrong thing. Um, and then some people just want to basically be able to get that input and fix it, but not known publicly. So we see all three things. Uh, and then people do ask us, like, you know, hey, if it is at user level, it's great because, you know, when I check in or whatever, you know, you tell me I fix it before it goes in. Yeah. Um, from the organization perspective, though, right, like the engineering managers are like, if I have it like at, as a Git hook and, you know, it goes out, then, you know, it's good because, you know, I stop something that some, like, you know, if somebody hasn't installed your tool and it goes in, you know, I can fix that. But then when you do that, then people are like, You know, I'm getting commented on my work, not by a human, doesn't have the context and, you know, stuff like that. So we see all of that. uh, But, you know, most of the people like developers would be like, if I can get it before I do something, it is much more better than, you know, going out there. But the engineering managers are like, I want to stop everything that is going in, which is not good. So I want it, uh, you know, at the other level. But then people are like, can it take like you know some some of the senior guys are like, can we provide it the context of why something was done in a particular way so that you don't give comments which are right if you're kind of looking at it from performance aspect, but based on how we did things is not something that we are going to do. So if you can feed that in, then you can do it, or you know, otherwise we can't use it. So we see all all the things uh, out there. Again, it's. Uh, philosophical and I'll call like muscle memory kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. wherein you know, people just expect it to be a certain way. And then they believe that if you, if you put this in, then, you know, you might have a problem.
1: That's something that I see with the widespread sort of proliferation explosion of LLMs as it affects software engineering as a, as an entire industry is and a lot of people are like, oh, it's going to automate our jobs. No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, we're a century away from anything like that cool. uh, at, at a minimum. But what it is going to do is what it's doing right now for teams that are willing to adopt it, which is increase productivity yeah. and just have another... It's not a, a creative human brain that's there, to, you know, sitting right next to you, commenting on what you're doing, saying like, are you sure you want to do that? But it's another perspective of something with vast knowledge resources to say, I have not seen this pattern before. I've seen kind of what I think you're trying to do 800 times done this way. Have you thought about this sort of thing? It can catch errors, which it's fantastic at. And I mean, I use it every single day. It's such an amazing technology and tool for software engineering productivity. However, what I think is actually going to change about code is what you just said. And it's something that I've started to do more when I'm providing, you know, code samples of something that I want it to modify or interface with, my inline code comments have become more verbose. Yeah. Where I'm it's almost like I'm crafting a prompt within my code comment to let it know this is why this is the way that it is, and we cannot change this due to X, Y, Z. And I find that, at least with GPT-4, it starts to sort of grok what the heck is going on, and it won't actually modify that in a way that will break integrations with other parts of the code. So that's what I think the big side effect is going to be. CodeBases are going to get bigger with text and not with code.
2: Text, comments, uh, or you provide supplemental data uh, correlating it, right, one Mm -hmm. way or the other. But yeah. As you rightly pointed out. And I think, you know, there is like nobody can take away a human who basically has a logical mind who decides, like, you know, what I think is it can solve any problem, but you need to figure out what problem to solve. That's a human who's going to pose the problem. Like, this is what I want to solve. The other thing is there can be like, you know, infinite ways to solve a problem, but it's only a human who basically will say, these are the restrictions that I have. This is the way I would like to approach to solve this problem. So the logical thinking is not going to go away. The real programmer is not going to go away, right? If, if you're basically copy pasting and like you know, uh, being a language translator in, in coding, yeah, then you are affected. But uh, as long as you are basically using your logical mind, I think you know, as you said, right, it's not going to go away soon, right? The it, it is generative AI. We don't say thinking AI, right? So there's a the reason for that. Uh, so, you know, human mind is still required. That is what I believe, right? For me, uh, like, you know, what I think about like this open AI and stuff is like we had abstractions, right? We had assembly, then we had C, then we have Java, right? And bunch of language, right? Which abstracted a lot of complexity. So now, you know, you can basically give instructions in English. But again, what it is doing is generating code that you need to run, right? It's not like taking your English and then executing it. So it's kind of a level of abstraction to get you information, right? Over a period of time, that abstraction will keep on getting better, right? So that it can solve problems and challenges based on the input that you gave. It'll try to figure out, like based on the input that you've given, you know, it might ask you like, is this the context that you're talking about right now? It doesn't, like, you know, does it to some level, but not a whole lot. And probably the context length will increase. I think that is a major thing because if that is solved, I think it can help with a lot of things. Right now, you know, it's kind of like you have a window of 32k or you have a window of 100k, and you have to see how to slide it properly so that you get the answers. Right. right? Uh, if it doesn't fit in, then you know, although you do a bunch of things, like if you can't fit in the context in the input, right, it, it's it's a challenge. Right. Summarization is a challenge. And I wouldn't say that we have solved everything, but yeah, we're seeing like what kind of issues it creates. And as we see them, we are kind of fixing them one by one. Uh, and we are learning over a period of time.
1: Yeah. And that's really the way to, to make any successful ML product yeah. is it's it's just brute force humans that are brilliant working on these problems and going through and saying, all right, that's a new problem we created because we fixed these other five. Let's tackle that. And then, you know, that iterative process. It's uh, it's how to make great stuff.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to jump in here. Uh, We could keep talking for at least six hours, maybe even up to 24 (laughs) hours. But unfortunately, we have jobs and lives that we have to get back to. Um, I think
2: Ben and I would code together.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, feel free. <laughs> we should
2: get on it at some some Yeah.
0: Yeah, just, just Saturday dates with you two over VS Code. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um cool. So I will quickly summarize. Um today we talked about a ton of really interesting and salient points regarding the LLM industry. And some of the things that I, I keyed in on were the challenges that we talked about. So Context length, which is essentially sort of the memory about a current session. And if you're not familiar, you can sort of think of it as like cookies for a web browser or anything like that. Um, maintaining state and maintaining context about what you're talking about is really challenging because there's finite memory. And so, uh, one thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating is Anand's team is looking to solve this limitation via intelligent search of sort of code dependency graphs. Super smart implementation. Another issue that we frequently run into is keeping models up to date. Retraining is really expensive. There's not enough GPUs. And so you can solve this either using context or sort of retraining with human-in-the-loop feedback. On the user side, there are a million challenges, but uh, a couple of things that we discussed is, one, people blindly using the tool. Solution for that is just don't do it. And also people nefariously using LLMs. Um, the, The gatekeeping aspect of sort of stacking a model that says, hey, should I actually be returning this to the user? That's a great solution. But with open source models, a lot of that burden goes to the, the developer that's creating the model. And so it's sort of an unsolved problem. So yeah, those were a few things. There was lots more. Um, but Anand, if people want to learn more about you or your work, where should they go?
2: You should go to bito.ai. Uh You know, we build uh, a developer heads uh, assistant uh, using AI, right? Still in nation stages, you know, a lot, you know, it's in the early stages, you know, it does some things right, uh, not all of them. And we believe that over a period of time, it will get better. We just launched uh, the functionality to actually answer questions based on your code. That means, you know, any code that you open in your IDE, uh, you know, we index it and then answer questions based on it. Um, Scale is a challenge, but, you know, we are getting there and uh, it will improve over a period of time.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And that's B-I-T-O dot A-I. Yeah. Cool. Well, until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. Have a good day, everyone.
1: See you next time.